Welcome. We hope you enjoy this recording from Christ City Church, based in Dublin, Ireland. For more podcasts and information on the church, please visit ChristCityChurch.ie. Thank you for listening. Okay, so the reading today is from Acts chapter 17, uh, verses 16 onwards. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. So he reasoned in the synagogue with both Jews and God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace day by day with those who happened to be there. A group of Epicurean and Stoic philosophers began to debate with him. Some of them asked, what is this babbler trying to say? Others remarked, he seems to be advocating foreign gods. They said this because Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. Then they took him and brought him to a meeting of the Areopagus, where they said to him, may we know what this new teaching is that you are presenting? You are bringing some strange ideas to our ears, and we would like to know what they mean. All the Athenians and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking and about and listening to the latest ideas. Paul then stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus and said, People of Athens, I see that in every way you are very religious. For as I walked around and I, and I looked very carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription, To an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship, and this is what I am going to proclaim to you. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and of earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. From one man he made all the nations that they should inhabit the whole earth and he marked out their appointed times in history and the boundaries of their lands. God did this so that they would seek him and perhaps reach out for him and find him, though he is not far from any one of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. As some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring. Therefore, since we are God's offspring, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design and skill. In the past, God overlooked such ignorance, but now he commands all people everywhere to repent. For he has set a day when he will judge the world with justice by the man he has appointed. He has given proof of this to everyone by raising him from the dead. When they heard about the resurrection of the dead, some of them sneered, but others said, we want to hear you again on this subject. At that, Paul left the council. Some of the people became followers of Paul and believed. Among them was Dionysus, a member of the Areopagus, also a woman named Damaris, and a number of others. Now, just as Steve comes up, I'm just going to pray for him. Yeah, God, would you please bless Steve now as he speaks, and would you give us eyes to see and ears to hear his message today as he proclaims it. Amen. Amen. Thank you, Ilana. Good to be with you all. My name's Steve. If we haven't met, hopefully we get a chance to meet at the end. Um, Athens was uh, one of the greatest cities our world has ever known, one of the great cities of iniquity. Uh, Here is the famous Acropolis, which I can urge you, you must go and visit. 
When Paul visited Athens in around AD 50, Athens was past its prime. Rome had ascended. But it was still the leading center of learning in the Roman Empire. It was the intellectual center of the Roman Empire. It was TCD, Oxford, Cambridge, Harvard, Yale, rolled into one. Athens was, is, the city of Socrates, Plato, and other great minds who pioneered the West's basic understanding of theater, philosophy, democratic government, and architecture. Those words, theater, philosophy, democracy, architecture, are Greek words, showing the abiding significance this city has had on all of our lives. In many other fields too, such as sculpture, medicine, public speaking, the writing of history, and someone came up to me this morning and said, and don't forget sporting competition, the Olympics. The Athenians arrived there not only first, but they arrived there in such a dominating and encompassing way we still live in their shadow today. The Areopagus, there I am, <laughs> on the Acropolis, pointing down at the Areopagus when I got to visit, also known as Mars Hill, is a rocky outcrop and acted like an ancient courtroom. It sits on the side and underneath the magnificent Acropolis and is surrounded by these amazing ancient temples and Greek gods. I have lots more tourist photos <laughs> if any of you want to find out about them. Paul's speech in Acts 17 is etched to this day on the side of Mars Hill, the Areopagus. One man in the, the second greatest city of his time, on his own, and there's a speech etched on the city still to this day. Not only was Athens a great city of learning, it was a great city of commerce and entertainment. Just down from Mars Hill and the, uh, and the Acropolis, uh, none of me, but these are my photos, was the Agora. The marketplace, it says in verse 18, but the Greek there is Agora, where the business and the trade happened, where the news of the town was shared and people could be entertained. Like, how do you get news in the ancient world? You don't turn on your phone and get Twitter out, do you? You go to the Agora. That's the gossip, that's the chat. What's the latest ideas? What's happened in Rome? You find out in the marketplace. So what can we learn from the missionary Paul, one man in one of the greatest cities of the world, about reaching the city and reaching the culture? We're a church in a great city, Dublin, a city of learning, lots of universities, a city of commerce, loads of business, and a city of entertainment, plenty of that. And less like Vinnie yesterday, you saw Dublin beat Wexford, didn't you? In hurling, Vinnie, I was sat next to him. Wasn't entertaining, was it? No. Um, what does it mean to have a missionary encounter in a city of learning, of commerce, and of entertainment? Well, I want to look at two things. Why we must reach the city and how to reach the city from the example of Paul. Why we must reach the city. For many years, Christian scholars and non-Christian scholars, such as Rodney Stark, have noticed how urban-centric Paul's missionary strategy was. Paul planted church in the major cities of his day. Antioch, Philippi, Thessalonica, Athens, Corinth, Ephesus. And though he didn't plant the church in Rome, he would, couldn't wait to get there and strengthen that church. Why focus on cities? In summary, there's three reasons people have, some, you know, Summarize, why did Paul go to cities? The first one, cities are strategically and culturally influential. If you can reach the city, you can reach the country. The ideas from the city trickle down into the rest of society. As the city goes, and particularly as the places of learning, the universities go, so the culture goes. 
as the university seminar goes, so the rest of the culture 10 years later will go, won't it? Cities are a bridge to the entire region. Secondly, cities are open spiritually, and they're, sorry, they're spiritually open, diverse, and needy. Cities are less conservative than rural areas. People are open to new ideas. People move into cities because they want something new. The young move into cities. The rich move into cities. The poor move into cities. The ambitious move into cities. The nations of the world all move into cities. People are seeking something from the city, meaning, opportunities, experience, ideas, relationships, career. The city is so open and diverse spiritually with the melting pot of people and ideas, but also very needy. Do you see what moved Paul so much? The first verse in our reading, verse 16 of chapter 17. Well, Paul was waiting for them in Athens. By the way, there's a whole sermon there. If you're in a season of waiting, don't think God's forgotten you. <laughs> Amazing, isn't it? Well, Paul was waiting. He was just waiting. And God was at work. So there's a whole sermon there, but don't miss it. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see what? That the city was full of idols. Cities are always full of idols. False gods that people build their lives on to give them meaning, happiness, and security counterfeit gods that we search after, we're desperate for, that we want to find our identity in and feel that we're validated by, and so we serve. We looked at that the last few weeks. Cities are full of idols. There's more opportunities to worship idols, the false idols of money, power, and sex in a city than anywhere else. Cities have a power to seduce people and pull them in and pull on your heart and, and affect your mind like very little else and get you Selling your soul to the glitz, the allure, the glamour of the city. Focusing on the creation rather than the creator or the definition of idolatry. Thirdly, cities are numerically huge. There is more of God's image per square foot in the city than in the country. There are more lost souls in the city than in the country. And the cities of the world are just growing and growing and growing. I just read a book about the history of cities and the current problem in our world of cities. Currently, 50 to 80% of the West live in cities, and it's growing. Dublin just keeps on growing, doesn't it? Cities just a never-ending growth. There's over 90 cities of, of a million plus in China right now. 90. More people are moving into cities day by day by day, and so the church must act and respond and plant more churches in the cities, because that's where the people are and are increasingly going. In the Old Testament, God famously sends a very ungrateful, hard-hearted, self-righteous prophet called Jonah to the great city of his day, Nineveh, the capital of Assyria. And it took Jonah, it says, three days to explore this great city, which in ancient times was a long time. It was a big city for its time. And at the end of his engagement with the city, he wished that God would hit the destruct button and smite it. It was full of wickedness. And at the time, it was the arch enemy of God's people, Israel, and the oppressor of God's city, Jerusalem. And Nineveh, the historians will tell you, was violent and cruel. And so Jonah and God have this argument. You can read it in chapter 4 of Jonah. About whether Jonah should prioritize his own comfort, his own progress, his own self-righteousness, over the risky task of reaching the great city of Nineveh. And look how the argument ends, or the, the whole book ends, 
on a cliffhanger. God says to Jonah as they're having this argument about what should you prioritize, my safety or the needs of the city? And God says, and should I not have concern for the great city of Nineveh, in which there are more than 120,000 people that cannot tell their right hand from their left, and also many animals. Do you see what it says about God? What does it say about God and the city? And should I not have great concern for the great city? And that word concern means deep love, deep compassion. God is moved deeply when he sees the city. Why? Well, the three things. It's huge, 120,000 people. That's massive for the ancient world. It's spiritually needy. They don't know they're left from their right. They're lost. They're serving all kinds of things, but they're not serving me. And surprisingly, the animals. Now, that's not because they're fluffy. That's because they're money. They're food. That was wealth. That was, that was how you lived in the ancient world. The anim- God is concerned about the commerce. God is concerned about the well-being of the city. God is concerned that people have enough in the city. Paul went to plant churches in the cities because he'd caught God's heart for the city. When he went, unlike me, he did not go as a tourist to Athens. Look uh, in awe and uh, overwhelmed by its glories. He went and saw the lostness of a city. He went as a missionary. So that's why we must reach the city. How can we reach the city of Dublin? Five aspects to reach in the city. Firstly, with open eyes. Verse 16 again. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see that the city was full of idols. Verse 23. For as I walked around and looked carefully at your objects of worship, I even found an altar with this inscription to an unknown God. So you are ignorant of the very thing you worship. And this is what I'm going to proclaim to you. It's easy for us when we live in a city just to focus on our own lives, just to see our own lives. How am I doing? How am I getting on? We can stop opening our eyes to see the needs of the city. It was lovely to hear Patrick's prayer about the different needs in the city. To see the city was spiritualized. What are people living for? What are the known and unknown gods that the people of Dublin are currently worshipping? What gives these people stability and meaning? What are their hopes and desires? What are their aspirations? What are their heartaches and nightmares and sadnesses? The city can be intense and busy, demanding of time and energy and mental capacity, and we have to find sustainable ways of living in a city. That's a talk for another day. But we must never stop opening eyes and seeing the city spiritually. The city is lost. People are worshipping idols. If we want to reach the city, it starts with your eyes. Start looking at the people and look with compassion as Paul and God did and do. How do we reach the city with open eyes? But it doesn't stay in the eyes, does it? It goes to burning hearts. Verse 16 again. While Paul was waiting for them in Athens, he was greatly distressed to see the city was full of idols. And that word greatly distressed means provoked to anger. It's the same word used of Yahweh in the Old Testament when he sees the idols his people worship. Paul had the same heart as God. Paul was so concerned for the glory and honor of Jesus in the city of Athens that he saw the idolatry and it moved him profoundly. Jonah wasn't profoundly stirred when he saw the great city of Nineveh because he was more concerned about his own comfort, his own progress, the safety of his own tribe. Paul was profoundly moved with the deep love that God had. 
So how do, we, how do we engage with the city emotionally? How do we engage with the city from our hearts? Well, here are four and then a fifth way to engage the city. Many people, when they come to the city, treat the city with contempt for the many challenges in the city, for the evil and injustice, for the house pricing, for, for the government that doesn't, you know, the government can't even solve our problems. And what, that's a spirit of contempt, isn't it? We've started, we've lost hope for the city. You feel you're getting a hard deal and the, the city's not being kind to you. It's easy to treat the city with contempt and become bitter. It's scary, it's big, it can be lonely, isolating, it can be expensive. You can get less bang for your buck, as it were, in terms of a house or an apartment. In fact, you might not be able to get one and then you have to share and you think, ah! It's... You can treat the city with contempt when you feel like you're getting a hard deal from it. Or you can just leave. You can be indifferent towards the city. I see this all the time. Over the years, people come to the city to get what they need and then they move on. They're just indifferent towards the actual city. I'll take my education. I'll take my visa. I'll take my relationship. I'll take my one-up on the career ladder. I'll take that bit of money that I've got. And now I'm off. I got what I needed from you, city. I'm good now. And I'll leave. Like a consumer. You just take for as long as you want it. And then you move on. I see this all the time. People using the city. But not loving it. They're just indifferent towards it. Contempt towards the city, you get better about the hardships of it. Indifferent, I'm just taken and then I'm off. Maybe you romanticize the city. I see this all the time when people arrive here for the first six months. I'm just going to engage with the cool parts of Dublin. And there's lots of cool parts, and I still love the cool parts. And the city has so much to offer, doesn't it? Experience, pleasure, career, money, opportunities, relationships. You can look at the city with rose-tinted spectacles, and I'm just going to engage with the fun bits. But like any relationship, if you just love the city for what it gives you in terms of its glitz and its glamour, you'll soon be let down. I see that all the time. People arrive so excited about Dublin. Six, 12 months in, I think I'm going to move on. Dublin's just a bit hard. The romance is gone. They're not, they were never here for the city. They were here for themselves, and now it's sort of not that great. And they move on. So what does it mean to love the city? If it doesn't mean contempt, indifference, romance, well, there's one other thing it doesn't mean, sorry. It doesn't mean to love your tribe in the city. We see this all the time in the cities of our world today. People are just out for their own tribe, securing their own tribe. We don't know how to get on in the city. We just make sure we keep yourself to yourself. Don't say anything. Don't raise your head above the parapet. You stay within your own tribe and make sure your tribe succeeds in the city. We're not here for the good of other tribes, just our tribe. So that was, that was actually Jonah's issue. So what does it mean to love the city? What does it mean to be stirred by the city? Or to love in the Bible is always defined as sacrifice and service. Famous verse in the Bible, God so loved the world that he gave. He gave of himself and his son. 1 John 3.16, how do we know what love is? The apostle John says, Jesus Christ laid down his life and so we too must lay our lives down, he says. So to love the city is not to treat it with contempt, because it's hard. Not to treat it with indifference, because I just want to take from it. Not to romanticize it and just take as long as it's fun and then leave. Not just to love your tribe, but it's to serve, it's to sacrifice, it's to lay our lives down for the city and the people in the city. How do you reach the city? With eyes open to the spiritual lostness, with hearts burning with, love of, with the love of God for that city, with willing feet 
Notice the three places Paul goes to in verse 17 and verse 22. So he reasoned where? In the synagogue with the Jews and the God-fearing Greeks, as well as in the marketplace, the Agora, day by day, with those who happen to be there. And then he has this discussion with the two types of philosophers, the Epicureans and the Stoics. And then in verse 22, uh, they invite him. Then Paul stood up in the meeting of the Areopagus, the meeting of the philosophers in the city. So notice the three places. Paul goes to the synagogue, which is the spiritually seeking, the low-hanging fruit. For us in Dublin, that's the new Irish, that's the immigrants who are often far more open to the gospel than the locals. So we must go to them as they come to us. Secondly, the marketplace, the business, the commerce centers, the media center, the IFSC, the Docklands, Balls Bridge, Grafton Street, O'Connell Street, the tech companies, the financial institutions, the media outlets, the lawyers. We've got to go there to the places where commerce and business and law and media all happen. And thirdly, the Areopagus. I've talked about this, the intellectual centers to the universities. Paul was willing to go to each sector and society, uh, each sector of society in each sphere. And you notice that verse, uh, word there in verse 17, day by day. He went there day by day. He kept going. He didn't remain comfortable. He didn't go, I've been once, it's now. He went again and again and again. Sharing the gospel in a city is always done best in the context of an ongoing relationship that is being built day by day with the people whose lives you are starting to show, you're starting to show them that your life is different and yet credible and attractive. And as they see that day by day, they ask questions and you get to share. We must look for opportunities to build deep and meaningful relationships with all types of people in all the spheres, the religious world, the business world, the university, and day by day have respectful dialogue where we listen, we learn, and we respond. How do you reach a city? with open eyes seeing the lostness, with burning hearts full of love, with willing feet. How beautiful are the feet of those that bring good news to all spheres of society. Fourthly, with an active mind. A key word there in verse 17 is, and he reasoned with them. In other words, Paul didn't preach to them. There you go, well, what about the inscription that's still on the wall today? Yeah, that is his sermon. But that was often an invitation that they gave him. Initially, he just reasoned. So we must never go to our city and go, I'm going to preach to you. We reason, we discuss, we engage, we build relationships. And at some point, they might go, we want to hear what you have to say. And then we go, right, I've been given the opportunity to speak now into a city that is not really popular. You know, Christian ideas aren't that popular these days. So we have to dialogue, we have to reason, we have to discuss, we have to play the long game, we have to go back and forth, we have to listen, we have to respond, and eventually when they say, hey, we actually want to hear you, then we can engage with more of a monologue. Acts 17 is a masterclass in how churches and Christians should engage with culture. If we had time, we could look at the Stoic and the Epicurean philosophers and how they differed about life, and yet Paul engages with both of them. Paul engages, yet he confronts, he accommodates, and he critiques. He finds connection points, and he's willing to challenge. Paul sees in this city of Athens so much good because the image of God is in all people. It doesn't matter if you're Christian or not, you can do good. But Paul also sees the lostness because of the rebellious Athenian hearts as well. Like Daniel in Babylon, Paul knew how to engage without capitulating and confront without being isolating. 
So look at the engagement first. In verse 28, Paul first engages. And he quotes two of their poets or philosophers. For in him we live and move and have our being. Is a quotation from the 6th century BC Cretan philosopher Epimenides. And he says to them, as some of your own poets have said, we are his offspring, is a quotation from the 3rd century Cilician Stoic philosopher Aratus. Like Daniel in Babylon, we've just done a series, haven't we? Paul so knew the language and the literature of the locals. He knew their worldview. He knew their poets. He knew their philosophers. And though he may not believe all they believed or accept the premises of those beliefs, Paul could articulate their beliefs as well as they could articulate them. He quotes their poets and their philosophers back to him, to, to them. So Paul connected with the Athenian culture. So we must do that too. To find that connection point in the city through the films people are watching, the songs people are singing, the artists they're going to, 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 to watch. If you're into philosophy or psychology or sociology or any, read those books that the culture is saying, this is the latest we have on these topics. Understand them so you can quote them back to the culture and gain credibility. Paul entered in. He found common ground. He gained traction and credibility. He was one of them. He engaged. That must be our aim in sharing the gospel, to use the language, the ideas that are so familiar to everyone around us that we gain credibility. Paul was able to connect. And secondly, he was able to connect, but he was willing to confront. Firstly, connection. Second, confrontation. He shows the inconsistencies of their worldview on their terms. So verse 24, 25, and 29. The God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. And he is not served by human hands as if he needed anything. Rather, he himself gives everyone life and breath and everything else. And he carries on. God appoints the times. He's in, in charge of all history and nations and that we are to seek him. And then he quotes the two poets and the philosophers in verse 28. And then in verse 29, he says, therefore, since we are God's offspring, their premise, remember? Their philosopher said that. Since we are God's offspring, well, we should not think that the divine being is like gold or silver or stone, an image made by human design or skill. When you stand on Mars Hill, you realize how radical Paul was. There are enormous, still this day, ruins of these magnificent temples built by human hands where the Greek gods supposed to live. And there's temple after temple after temple. And we don't even have half of them. Half of them are destroyed. And they're everywhere still to this day. And Paul says, God doesn't live in these. He doesn't live in temples built by human hands. I mean, how could he? Your poets say, we are his offspring. So if he made us, and if he determines all of history, and if he's, then he's not going to be like gold or silver or stone. And he's not, he's the creator of all things. So Paul is pointing out the contradiction of their worldview. He's saying to the philosophers and the poets, is it not ridiculous an idea that the God who made everything in whom we live would then live in the temples that we make him? That's just ridiculous. And you can see the inconsistencies of their worldview because they've got this unknown God. It's as if they're covering their bases. Well, we better have one just called unknown God just in case he happens to be in one we don't even know on their terms with their poets and their philosophers 
And from there, verse 24, he says he's the one that created all things. Verse 25, sustains all things. Verse 26, rules and controls all things, which is very sort of stoic and epicurean in different ways. Is the father of all nations, verse 28, and is the judge of all, verse 30. What Paul does in Athens is what apologists, are those that defend the Christian faith today, call subversive fulfillment. Let me explain it. He first enters the worldview, quotes their poets, quotes their philosophers, uses their language, and then on their own terms does two things. One shows that it's not coherent, and two says, but what your heart and mind wants can be fulfilled in Jesus. He subverts, and then he fulfills. Your current worldview is not coherent, and your current worldview, and all these idols, they're not satisfying you. But let me lead you to the one that does. Your heart and your mind desire something that's good, but you're looking for it in the wrong place. Paul knows the Athenians are thirsty. They have all these gods, these many gods, these many idols, and they have this unknown one just in case. And he knows that they're not satisfied. And their search for meaning and truth and intimacy and transcendence has not been met. Through these many temples, they just keep on building. And so Paul takes the thirsty Athenians from broken cisterns to living water that will satisfy and is coherent. If you're familiar with the work of Tim Keller, his preaching or his writing, he's using Paul's cultural approach to secular society today. Keller quotes, uses the language and the modern ideas. He's always quoting the latest books. And then on, 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 the, on the terms of the culture, he graciously shows them the inconsistencies and how it's not working, but how Jesus can fill the desires and aspirations of modern culture. If you want to think more, I have a load of books, of which one you can take. I mean, you can take more if you want to steal them off me. Uh, a Place for God, we have some of these. Uh, a friend of mine, Navigating Timeless Questions for Modern Times. That is doing subversive fulfillments. Uh, Glenn Shriven has written a fantastic book called The Air We Breathe, How We Came to Believe in Freedom, Kindness, Progress, and Equality, and How Culture Has Ditched Jesus and It's Not Working, because they all came from him. Brilliant little book by Glenn Shrivener. Uh, Daniel Strange has written two books. I could only find one in my study. This one's called Making Faith Magnetic, Five Hidden Themes Our Culture Can't Stop Talking About, and How to Connect Them to Christ. He's actually articulates subversive fulfillment in, uh, in, in, in that. Uh, and, then, and then, yeah, uh, if you haven't read or are not engaged with Tim Keller, I encourage you to. The Reason for God came out, what, 10 years ago? It's still a classic. And more recently, this is his book of subversive fulfillment, Making Sense of God. And he looks at all the things. I'll just read some of the chapter headings. A meaning that suffering can't take away, a satisfaction that is not based on circumstances, why can't I be free to live as I see fit as long as I don't harm anyone? The problem is self, an identity that doesn't crush you or exclude others, a hope that can face anything, the problem of morals, a justice that just does not create new oppressors. He goes on the cultural terms and argues they don't work and leads you to Jesus. I commend them to you, and we have copies of that one, so you can take that. How can we reach a city today? Open eyes, see the lostness, hearts burning, with the love of God. Feet willing with the good news to go to all spheres. An active mind, learning, engaging, listening, connecting, confronting. And fifthly, with the message of Jesus or with lips that are speak, speaking of Jesus. At the start of verse 18, 
at the end of the, the sermon, it says that Paul was preaching the good news about Jesus and the resurrection. The philosophers of Athens discussed ideas. It seems they had nothing better to do all day than discuss ideas. Don't you love verse 21 as an indictment on the Athenians? We have one. She's my lodger, Anastasia. Let's see what it says about the Athenians. And the Athenians, verse 21, and the foreigners who lived there spent their time doing nothing but talking about and listening to the latest ideas. That's a bit harsh. Uh, ideas, ideas, ideas. The Athenians loved ideas. We don't preach ideas. We preach a person. We preach a person. And he entered history. And the most important thing about this person is that he rose from the dead, so there's veracity. This isn't an idea. This is part of history. You can prove. You can engage with this person. We speak about his resurrection. Yes, we understand. Yes, we reason. Yes, we dialogue. Yes, we try and quote the films and the songs that the people of our, uh, our, our universities and our, our workplaces are listening to and, and, the, and the books they're reading. Yes, we do all that subversive fulfillment and it's hard and we need to learn. But only Jesus can save. Not your intellect. So we preach him. Not ideas, but a person. And what did Jesus do for the city he was called to reach? remember the day before and he's weeping over the city and he's praying for the city because he can see the lostness of the city and he longs that Jerusalem would come back and he knows that destruction is coming for it Jonah walked away from the city and looked with disdain over the city he was called to reach but when Jesus saw the city of God his heart was filled with compassion but he didn't leave he laid his life down for that city but not just for the city, for you. Jesus saw the idols in your heart, and yet he came. Paul, at the end of this passage, has some followers. Some want to engage him a bit more, but he's got a lot of people mocking him. Jesus was mocked and scorned and rejected. He plunged himself into the marketplace and our world of confusing ideas, and he died for it, to set us free. And to put us into an eternal city, that will never perish, spoil, or fade. To secure our place in a city that really will satisfy and is free from all idols and impurity. Maybe you feel overwhelmed when you consider what it means to reach the city. Maybe you want to run away from the city. Maybe you feel inadequate. I could never do this. Maybe you feel conviction. Yeah, I just take from the city and I've only looked for the glamour in it and I haven't given and I haven't, haven't got that mindset. Maybe you say, I've tried. I've tried. I've been here before, Steve, and I feel deflated after five or ten years. It's hard serving the city. Maybe you do feel bitter towards the city because you feel you've been given a hard, a hard time, maybe particularly with the housing. When you see Jesus giving up his life for you, to secure your spot in a city that will never perish, spoil, or fade, you'll be able to love this city no matter what the city does for you. You better lay your life down. You'll be able to sacrifice for it. May God help us engage with the great city of Dublin in our day as Paul engaged with the great city of Athens in his day. May God give us the same wisdom and courage that he gave Paul. He was just one man, one man. And yet today there's a plaque on the city of Athens that remains. Paul's words are written into the cities of Athens to this day. He left a legacy. Wouldn't it be amazing if our small church left a legacy on this city 
not with a plaque, but hundreds of lives that were engraved into an eternal city. Wouldn't that be an amazing testimony? Because we saw and we felt and we went and we spoke and we loved. May we follow in Paul's footsteps. May our eyes be opened, our hearts aflame, our feet ready for action, our minds active, and our tongues loose to go to Dublin with the message of Jesus, that many may come to know him. Amen. Let's stand. Let's have a moment to pause. I'll pray. We're then going to sing. And uh, after we've sung, I'm going to come and lead us in a time of communion and response. Oh, Father, we think of the Apostle Paul, one man, a lone ranger in that great city, and yet he wasn't awed or wowed or he wasn't treating the city as just a tourist. He came with your heart and your eyes and your feet and uh, lips loosened by the great news he knew of Jesus. And I pray that as we've reflected on what he did, we might follow in his footsteps and that you might help us to see the city afresh this week, uh, to have our heart moved by the plight of so many in this city and the lostness of it, that you might move our feet back in to the city, to, to, to the different spheres and the different communities. Uh, that you might loosen our lips and help us in our mind, Lord, as our culture becomes more secular, to know how to engage with it on its terms and speak words and languages and, uh, uh, that make sense so we can communicate the good news to them. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.